foot enthusiasts, minimal footwear lovers, or anyone trying to fix your own feet, I'm heading to North Carolina this May to lead a live, in-person, three-day retreat all about feet. I'm going to be at the Art of Living Retreat Center, which is up in the mountains of North Carolina. It's so beautiful there. And are you ready to hear what I'm calling it? The retreat is called Healing Your Soul, a stepwise approach to building forever functional feet. That's so good, right? If you want to learn all about how to take care of the muscles, bones, joints, fascia, and nerves of the feet, and learn how strong feet and ankles relate to sustainable hips and knees, this event is for you. In addition to the classroom and movement time with me, you're on retreat. So there's delicious meals, a nature-rich campus that you can explore on foot, and plenty of time for rest and relaxation, all included. A retreat is a perfect way to care for yourself in the moment, but also in the future. You are coming to learn a massive toolkit of information. So whether you're a competitive runner, a dynamic ager, or a healthcare practitioner, this is a weekend full of movement for you and your feet. And like I said, you're gonna leave with a toolkit and a big swag bag that you can use to train your feet for life. For more information about the movement sessions, the food, the center, head to my website, nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. That's nutritiousmovement.com slash retreat. This is Katie B, and you are about to listen to an early episode of my podcast. Now the show is called The Move Your DNA Podcast, and you can find all episode transcripts and the show notes to this episode at nutritiousmovement.com slash podcast. Enjoy. the Katie Says Podcast, where movement geek Danny Hemant joins biomechanist Katie Bowman, author of Move Your DNA for discussions on body mechanics, movement nutrition, natural movement, and how movement can be the solution to modern ailments we all experience. Uh, and it's Groundhog's Day today. Not when you're listening to this, but while we're talking. It's the Katie Says Podcast, <laughs> where movement... <laughs> I got you. That's babe. a joke. Yeah. That's a joke. <laughs> Those are joke for people who spend a lot of time watching movies. Yes. With Bill Murray. That's actually one of our family rituals on Groundhog's Day is mm-hmm. we're gonna roast up a nice groundhog and then watch Groundhog's Day tonight. So like it. Yeah. All right. So today's show, fat and metabolism. A while back you and I were tossing around show ideas and this was one of them. And you just kind of mentioned casually that a person can spot reduce. And then we moved on in our conversation. And I have not been able to have this. I mean, it's been running around in my head over and over. Let's talk about that today, spot reduction and other fat and metabolism stuff, because we get a lot of questions about this. I want to know. A lot of people want to know. Want to talk about fat? Yeah. And, you know, to clarify, well, the whole show will clarify. So, what do, what do we mean by spot reduction? I think fat in general could use a whole book about fat. That's not a diet book, but a mechanics-based mm-hmm. understanding of fat. So let's talk about it. All right. All right. There's different kinds of fat. We know there's brown fat, white, subcutaneous, visceral, belly fat. What role do the different kinds of fat have? And... And are they well, deposited differently? Yeah. Do we make them differently? Like, yeah. what's it all about? What's it all about, Katie? 
<laughs> well, there's that's there's a lot of physiology there, which is not my my field, but I think I can speak well to kind of the physics of fat, fat physics, mm-hmm. and the mechanics of fat, which are probably the less the least represented perspectives of fat that you will find. You can find all sorts of good references on fat as it relates to diet. And then of course, like there's the general understanding of fat as it relates to movement in terms of calories in, calories out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. Did, 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 I just, did you just, just, just verbal a little bit? What was that? <laughs> I did. I did. I just, because it's just like, there's so much more going on. Right. So let's do a little primer, okay. a little fat primer. So what is fat for? We have, I think, a perspective that fat is just there to make us miserable, like that it's not a valuable physiological thing. Mm. So let's reframe how we think about fat. And fat, what it does is it stores energy, it produces hormones, it can generate body heat, it's part of your thermal regulation system, it can be cushion, it can be a connective tissue, and it can be padding. All of those things are things that you want should you need them. And if you thought of the body fat, the shape of your fat, if you will, where it's located and how much of it is there and where, I guess it's almost like robusticity. Robusticity would be the clinical word for shape and mass distribution. So your fat robusticity, it's going to match your behaviors. And those behaviors are not how much you eat or aren't limited to how much you eat. Fat is only framed dietarily, I think, most regularly. Luckily, we're seeing more stuff with brown fat versus white fat. So one of the... I wrote a blog post, and I think it's called It's Not Different, It's Just More. And it was a whole list of... We talked about this in another show, too, I think. It was a whole list of... Factors that have been identified in obesity research more than it's just, hey, these people are just like eating out of control. And it's like, really? No, there's a lot of people who are eating perfectly in control and dealing with a particular lipid profile that they'd like to change. So it's like, well, let's give it, let's give some more information. So there are two, two groupings of fat. There's white fat, which is your energy storage, hormone production. And it can also be part, it can be like the padding that we were talking about Mm -hmm. in connective tissue, but then there's brown fat. Brown fat has more mitochondria. It's more active. And I've read things where... Wait, I'm sorry. Did you just say it has more mitochondria? Yes. Oh, cool. That's why it's active. You know, mitochondria are like the cellular engines. So (sighs) it's, it's active. It's full of engines. It's working. And so I've heard brown fat, I've heard arguments to reclassify brown fat as more of an active tissue like muscle because Mm. they both have the same similar chemistry, which is, you know, so this is about classification systems. When you classify things by how they look, you might get one classification of like, this is fat and this is muscle. But if you classify things by how they work, then fat, brown fat and protein would be in the same column and white fat would be out. So classification systems, they're all valid just based on how you've set them up. So brown fat or brown adipose is another way that you might see it written about is part of your thermoregulation system. And so 
it's there working to keep you warm. And people who do not expose themselves to a variance in ambient temperature, if you live in a place where you are always outsourcing your body's work to heaters and clothes and whatnot, then you would not have as much brown fat. Everyone's got a little bit of brown fat, Mm -hmm. but they have much less than people who are exposing themselves regularly to a variance of ambient temperature to cold, right? Because like right. now you're you're adding more parts to your body. It's like these are more working parts. So anyway, well, doesn't doesn't didn't you read that Wim Hof has more? I mean, he has like a really high amount of brown Does he? fat. Yeah, yeah. I would I would like that makes sense. And I think swimmers too. You know, when I was an undergrad, that was there was a lot of research. I was in the early '90s, going on about why do swimmers tend to have more body fat? Is it the exposure to the water, you know, where, where you're taxed? I mean, there's a lot of different reasons that it could be that, but that was one of the potential mm-hmm. theses. So anyway, babies I read have, they're born with a lot of brown fat, but that's weird because they're in a warm womb. So that must just be there to help them create that heat when they come out until sure. they... Right. I mean, like there are things that are modifiable and then there are things that are phylogenetic, mm-hmm. genetic. So, you know, you don't when you're going to come out, I mean, the fact that you come out to a place that's heat regulated and blankets and a ton of stuff is <laughs> fairly new for the human. You don't have the muscle mass and the movement capability really like movement is going to do a lot of heating for you, shivering, all those things. Babies don't have the ability to move as they will also, you know, often or as they want, or really just don't have the ability to have that full movement yet. So they have more brown fat to do the work of their heat regulation early on is interesting. That is interesting. So that means, I mean, with all these, these different roles that fat plays, all fat isn't bad then, right? No. And I would say that really you could reframe it to no fat is bad. No, like there are, like there's nothing bad or wrong with fat. Like it's, it's a wonderful thing. You might have a distribution of it or a robusticity of it that you would like to change but if your distribution and robusticity of it matches your input, then the good news is all you have to do is change your input for a different shape or distribution. What you have to do is understand how is it serving you? Your body fat is serving you right now. Hmm. So to hate it as it's of service is futile. <laughs> you know, what understanding it, I think, and then going, oh, okay, so I get it, you know, X, Y, and Z, and here's how I'm going to modify. And it gives you more options to modify your body composition rather than eat less, exercise more. Oh, that's cool. You know what I mean? So, yeah. um, Okay, so I think there's a study, there's a section in Don't Just Sit There, which is my favorite section, which is a section that they put in the Dr. Oz magazine. So we talked about it last episode where... The office You know, fat has been looked at extensively through its chemical properties, you know, how it, how it performs chemically, but I've of course am interested in what are the, what are the mechanical laws that are affecting fat distribution and fat type. And if you are interested, you can, I don't have the name, like any names of, of the particular studies, but if you go to Google Scholar PubMed and you'll search adipose mechanotransduction or adipocytes and mechanotransduction, there's a lot of new research looking at if you take an adipose cell or really a clump of cells, a tissue, and you do static 
which is kind of meaning that you're, you're, it's a static stretch. If you're doing a static stretch for a long period of time, that triggers more adipose. Hmm. So this mechanically, this is very similar to why our muscle lengths fluctuate and change. If you think of a, a fat cell as doing something like, you know, you, we sit in chairs, we sit on hard surfaces a lot. Mm-hmm. And so if you kind of reach back and feel your ischial tuberosity, your butt bones, you've got this, this heavy skeleton that is going to sit on something firm underneath it for a long period of time. And the tissues between the ischial tuberosity and the seat are going to get stretched and thinned out. And so when you take those adipocytes, at this point, they're being cushioning, right? They are, they are bending and thinning underneath the weight of your body, right? Think of a balloon. If you sit on a balloon, it's going to go from round and high and it's going to get thin and short just because mm-hmm. you're deforming it. Well, that think of that happening, but in thousands, hundreds of thousands of cells, I guess, depends on how much fat you have on your butt. For me, hundreds of thousands of cells like in there and they're thinning out. And if you looked at that cell being squashed its ability to do its job is going to be less should you add something more on. And so it grows more, it increases in number. So you become more fat in that area as a protective mechanism. So just another reason, if you're interested in changing your fat robusticity, your the shape and the location of your fat, then look at how you're asking fat to protect you in different scenarios, you know? So it's not all about metabolism in the sense of like how much you're moving right. it's also the geometries of what's going on there's a bigger picture if you're sitting on the floor you transition to floor sitting typically when we sit on the floor there's a lot more movement you know you don't just veg out i mean i find i'm i'm constantly moving around and changing positions so would that just kind of be more like a, a nice whole hand callus if i'm always moving around would i just even out that that robusticity of the deposits sure that's an excellent way to look at it in terms of like if you're thinking of it as a callus, you sitting on the floor, it's also though, let me go back for a second. If you just swap, if you just swapped your chair sitting for floor sitting, they would still be almost identical. Mm -hmm. What is so cool about floor sitting though, is floor sitting tends to lend itself to using 10 different postures to sit Mm -hmm. on the floor. And that is what makes floor sitting more dynamic. It's not as comfortable. You don't have things to support you. So when you're fatigued, you just naturally shift. And so that would be enough to, you know, you're deforming different balloons. You're you're deforming fat in different areas. So it's not not just deformation. It's like long-term static high magnitude deformation of the adipose sites that would require, you know, more of them to protect that particular area. But it's also important to say that's why moving in general is so great sitting less like you can sit better by floor sitting but sitting less you know and I don't mean just standing or only standing but just changing your life where you're just not in any one position all of the time yeah well there's so many to get into and that kind of makes me think that maybe we should have a little a butt movement break I know right like if you're sitting down it's like ah ah. (laughs) why don't you stand up everyone, reach back behind you and put your cheeks in your hands. And I don't mean the ones on your face. <laughs> well, because that was easy. To... <laughs> <gasps> ah! All right. So you're going to hold your backside and 
what's the best way to do this? I think you're going to need to cup the lowest part of your cheek so that you're actually holding like a balloon in each hand. And I'm just going to actually have you experience finding your ischial tuberosities, which are um, what people, like it's the word for the sitting bones. So you'll bend forward. I have to go forward to be able to teach this. And as you bend forward, you can kind of see if you can move your fingers around and really find those bony protrusions. And you're just going to go forward and you're going to shift to the right and to the left. And you're going to come up and come down. But you're really experiencing that movement of your ischial tuberosity and the, and the fat and the muscle over it as you're moving. I'm going to go do it for just a few seconds because it feels really good. And I just, I don't know, I think it's nice to tune into how your skeleton is moving, not just the parts of your body that you can see, but yeah, it's fun. the stuff that you can't. It's kind of fun to like touch your muscles when you're stretching and when you're yeah. in different positions, feel around. And when you're sitting, you know, like, oh, okay, when I'm, when I'm sitting, everything between that part that you're holding on to, that ischial tuberosity, you can feel it more when you're bending over and kind of shifting from side to side. Everything between that bone and the surface that you sit on is deformed. So if you can and think, okay, that's going to make a callus in one particular area. I love that analogy that you just did. It was great. So can you shift around so that you are constantly sitting on more parts of your body, you know, sitting on your legs folded underneath you or one hip and then the other is a lots of different ways to be still that don't require the deformation of your butt flesh that sitting in a chair mm. does. So anyway, you're welcome. That's good. <laughs> and if anybody's watching this and they don't know what you're doing, well, <laughs> you're just gonna have to explain yourself later. All right. It's fun to do it in a big window. Just mm -hmm. yeah, never mind. Okay, let's move on. Let's. Okay. Fat. None of it's bad. It all has purpose. Just depends on how we look at it. Let's talk about this thing that I'm just dying to talk about and something that <laughs> we've all been, I mean, most of us have been raised with, with a, in the fitness world or, you know, in our adult life of the fat fact, which isn't really fact of you can't spot reduce, right? It's definitely a mantra, right? Yeah. You can't spot reduce. I'll just tell you right now, I've actually said that, you know. Sure. You know, when I was a, a aerobic step aerobics instructor and somebody asked yeah. me, I'm like, oh, you can't do that. And sorry, everybody. I didn't know. Well, let's talk about it because. Yeah, because I don't understand. Sure. The mechanics of it. Why Why and what? And I, it's going to be a semantics issue. It's going to be a mechanics. Semantics and mechanics. Okay. So let's start with um, the term spot reduction. It refers to localized fat loss as a result of exercising a particular part of the body. So that's what spot reduction means. Another term, lipolysis, and I'll spell it. It's lipo and lysis. Lyso means like to cut, break open. Lipo is fat. So lipolysis is the mechanical breakdown of fats. So where does that you can't spot reduce come from? I think that it's most important. It's always when you're trying to make sense of a, let's say this was a law of exercise. I mean, I have read scathing commentary of people going, you're an idiot if you say that you can spot reduce. I mean, I just, I mean, it's always scathing, right? Because it's the internet. So let's talk about where it comes from. So there are about, there's probably about five or six published research articles that have ever investigated this. So the first most 
popularized one was from the 70s and it was on tennis players and I'm going to do my best to to read the names of them so that you can go read them yourself if you want to. So the first one was thickness of subcutaneous fat and activity of underlying muscles. And that was looking at tennis players who had a dominant arm and a non-dominant arm of their tennis, right? So you're either a right hand, mm-hmm. right-handed tennis player or left-handed tennis player. So the arms that they didn't swing that much, they did not find a difference in subcutaneous fat on the non-dominant arm or dominant arm compared to the non-dominant arm. So that was the first piece. So it was about the same on both arms. It was about the same on both arms. Okay. And so that was the first piece of evidence that clearly if you have a dominant arm, it should have less fat because you're using that arm more Mm -hmm. theoretically, at least when you're doing major athletics, right? So even though you're using it, so like already there's some problems with that design, but even if we just accepted it as is, that's fine. The second round of research on spot reduction come from the early 2000s. Isn't that weird to say the early 2000s? <laughs> God. So these are going to be, I think it's interesting to know what period these mm-hmm. come from. Like if you're using Definitely. a piece of evidence from the 30s, it's like, okay. All right. So then the next two studies were like around 2005, 2008, somewhere in there, I think. So this was subcutaneous fat alterations resulting from an upper body resistance program. So this was 100 people who were given upper body exercises for 12 weeks, two times a week, for 45 to 60 minutes. The exercises they did were the preacher curl for the biceps, overhead tricep extension, bicep concentration curl, tricep kickback, and standing bicep curls. So they work their biceps and triceps kind of like you do the first time you ever go to a gym, mm-hmm. right? You're just like lifting things up. So it was it was a couple muscle groups. You know, they're always thinking like, well, if we use the major muscle right. groups, then what should happen is the whole area should go down in terms of fat. <laughs> so, so like this was 12 weeks, but it was like, okay, so they used their arms 90 minutes to 120 minutes out of, it sounds like a lot, right? But when you put it in the context right. of out of 10,080 minutes for 12 weeks, so I don't know what the numbers are. You have to divide 120 by 10,080. Can you do that for me real fast so I can have a percentage oh, just for You know effect? what? She just stepped out. Just let's keep going. on. The, what do you want? No, really. What do you want? <laughs> okay, the assistant. Dang it. <laughs> What's 120 divided by... 10,080. So while you're doing that, and you can just give me the percentage. Okay. This was what they researched to see if the working arm would have less body fat than the other arm. Because body fat, when you exercise, when you, when you, it's not when you exercise, when you live, when you do anything that requires energy, Really, fat's the energy that you're going to burn constantly all of the time. So you're burning it, you're using it everywhere in your body because you're never not like you're you're breathing, right? Your ribs are going up and down. You're using muscles all over your body all of all of the time. 
And so you're always mobilizing fat. But when you mobilize one, when you use one part of your body more so than the other, the idea that they're trying to figure out is really you should be pulling from the fat stores in that particular area. But what's the percentage there? It's 0.01. All right. 0.01 is the number that you see or is 0.01%? Did you move the decimal? the number I see. Okay. No, I do. So it'd be 1. 1%. 1 be 1%. So 1% of a week was spent moving the arms and they didn't see a change, right? So just, just keep that in mind. Another one was more, there was also one around that time, something similar with ab, like abdominal exercises. A small group of people this time, you know, did 200 crunches and then 400 crunches and some different exercises, you know, two or three times a week. And I don't have the specifics on that particular study, but it was similar in design and then didn't see fat loss, saw strength improvement, but not fat loss of the area. So again, if we convert it into percentages of time of body used, that's helpful. And then the most recent one was from 2013, regional fat changes induced by localized muscle endurance resistance training. So this was people doing leg extension. Now, was it leg extension? No, I think it was leg press. And they were doing leg press. Yeah, they're doing the leg press exercise. Yeah, it's like a thousand repetitions, three sessions a week for 12 weeks, which again, seems like a lot, like a thousand of something. But it's like, okay, but if you look at how much total amount of activity for the leg percentage wise of the time that you could be moving your leg, it's still fairly small. And I have a point for continuing to harp on that. But again, changes... They notice fat changes in all of these, or at least in some of these. They notice changes in total body composition. So you're losing fat Mm -hmm. because you're using fat as a fuel because of these kind of low-intensity exercises that you're doing. It's just not coming off from any one particular spot. They're not noticing a difference when they do the body fat of one working leg versus the non-working leg. They're not seeing that difference. So... In two, oh gosh, I wish I knew the year, but I don't. Anyway, it's, I, I think it's around, again, back to the 2006-2007, because I think that this study was the one that kicked off the interest in spot reduction again, which was, this is, this is again an exercise study, but instead of using something like a DEXA or a CT scan, right, that's looking at a two-dimensional picture of your fat storage and estimating it from there. This actually, this study, and the study is called Our Blood Flow and Lipolysis in Subcutaneous Adipose Tissue Influenced by Contractions in Adjacent Muscles in Humans. It just means when you work one particular muscle, are you using the fat in the area of that particular muscle? Or is fat being metabolized evenly throughout the entire body? Like, does your whole body start kicking in when you use one particular muscle? So this was I think this one was leg extension. And they actually had in real time, they were drawing blood from the working leg and the non-working oh. leg to measure the fat, the local fat that was mobilized in the blood during the exercise. And what they found was the working leg was indeed had more fat in that particular area. It was 
mobilizing. You are spot reducing. Mm. You are spot reducing. Okay. So, so now, now that we have a, a more, it's very hard, you know, like when you're looking at a DEXA and you're doing 1%, like really tiny motions, they seem big in an exercise culture, in a sedentary slash exercising culture. I should say that a lot of these studies are, you know, they're, they're pulling athletes because they're being done in, in yeah, kinesiology departments. And so you're, you're using people under the age of 40 who are already fit and active populations. I think the abdominal study was sedentary population, but the rest of the time you're dealing with athletes for the most part, which is important to note. Mm-hmm. It's not always noted in the abstract, but if you read the full articles, it is. But you have here, what you have is evidence that you are spot reducing. Okay. So that is why everyone then, I think, started to do other like, wait, I thought you couldn't spot reduce. Well, then I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to do now we're going to do 10,000 leg presses over a period of 12 weeks. I'm going to really beef up the amount of movement that I do because 10,000 seems really big. But again, if we take a percentage, it's going to be tiny, tiny, tiny. So what you have are you have four to six studies. One actually measured really a biological process. The other were the others were measuring the effectiveness at exercise programming on oh, spot reducing. Difference. Yeah, you see the difference. Yeah. So you're looking at you know they're they're very small and uh, you know the number of participants are small, which is fine. It helps you gather data, but the bigger thing is is we have created a fitness mantra. We have created a mantra and a fact or a myth, depending on how you look about it about how your biology works based on really doing something measuring like how does this is this exercise program effective you have measured like the more correct statement was doing exercise in this particular way does not result in a easily measurable easily visual reduction of body fat in an area exercise exercises 10,000 of this particular exercise we've extrapolated an idea of how your biology works based on exercise research and when you had someone do a a really a better study to measure a biological phenomenon you saw that what came out of it was kind of more what you would expect to see based on like it's called biological pl- plausibility like based on how fat storage and how things mobilize and mm-hmm. other things that are, you know, more well-known or have been established. It's how we expected it to play out, which was cool. It's also fine if it doesn't play out in the way that you expect it. But in this measure, it did. But what you aren't able to do is through doing even high reps of an exercise, which again, if you look at it differently, is an extremely low quantity of movement. That too kind of aligns biologically is like, you're not moving all that much. Why would, you're not mobilizing very much fat at all. As much as you think you are, there are ways to mobilize way more fat, which is to work your whole body, you know, vigorously, right? To, to move a lot of it because you're moving a lot of parts to fuel that. But in the end, you are still pulling fat away from the areas that are working more so than the areas that are not working which then I think is an important part of the discussion about why you have fat in particular areas that maybe aren't being worked very much over the course of your life, not 
necessarily over the bout of a 12-week exercise study. So anyway. Oh, that's a really interesting way to look at it. So can you spot reduce? Well, yeah. Yeah, so so spot reduction, like biologically, spot reduction is how it works. However, the frequencies of movement are so slow, you know, even if you're doing, you know, two to three workouts a week over a period of four months, that's still quantitatively so low that you probably wouldn't notice any physical reduction in the shape of your fat deposits. So anyway. That is interesting. I don't even think that's really a semantics issue. I think that's actually not a semantics issue at all. It's just using the language. Right. Well, and just kind of thinking about, you know, when most people were thinking spot reduction, we think you're in quadruped doing donkey kicks, trying to get rid of saddlebags, you know, and that's what you're kind of, that's what you're thinking. You're not thinking about it as the actual what's happening biologically inside the body. The physiological process. Yeah. And I think it's also part of our sedentary culture thinking that doing a hundred of something is a lot. (laughs) It's like you having 100 glute contractions seems like a lot. A hundred is a big number. 10,000 steps is a big number. But when you put it into context Mm -hmm. of how much sedentary input, like how much time were you pushing? How much time was the person you know, sitting on their butts the rest of the time where fat was needed for some other reason, you know. And if you looked at, well, there were 827,000 signals of store and only 100 signals of release today, the numbers are not in your favor. So we framed everything to make our, you know, our exercise behaviors seem like a lot and significant, but they're not. They're small. They're small. And that's why I would expect people to not spot reduce visually or even in a DEXA, you know, which is still a visual large measurement because that's where you've done almost nothing. So anyway. Yeah, it's true. I tie it in with metabolism then, because that's usually another thing that we think about is, you know, I have a low metabolism, I have a slow metabolism. And if I'm doing lots of more than my hundred donkey kicks, you know, my glute contractions, I'm, I'm moving around all day. More of my muscles are moving more of the time. Wouldn't it stand to reason that my metabolism and that way of, of using, or if, let me say the lipolysis, would my lipolysis increase if I were increasing my all over movement? And is that because I'm increasing my muscle mass or just, I mean, all of it? you know, or because all the tissues. Are well, made. people use, I think people use metabolism. A metabolism is the, all of the chemical processes and mechanical processes, which then result in chemical processes that are occurring for you to be able to live. They all require energy to be able to do. So you have a basal metabolic rate, which is There's like, what is your basal metabolic rate? Like how much energy does it take to be you when you're not moving, when you're just still your baseline non-moving? Because when you then move, you're going to add on your metabolic rate that's in addition to whatever your basal metabolic rate, basic basals, your basic functions for living. Like even if you just, you know, sat in a bed every single day and didn't move, you're still actually moving. You're never still, you're breathing and your eyes are looking around okay. and you're thinking and your bo- your brain is monitoring and all those things take energy. But your lean mass, the amount of muscle that you have, you know, the classic argument is like it takes more energy to keep your lean mass healthy than it does to take 
to keep your fat healthy, certainly your white fat to be healthy, right? So I don't even know the delineation like mm-hmm. of calories per kilogram, you know, what's the difference of metabolic rate of white fat versus brown fat. I don't know that came in after I was already out of school because it's relatively new. But you don't get more lean mass without moving around a lot. So while you can take a snapshot comparison, the person who moves more overall, like you can have a low metabolism, but you're usually also not as much of a mover, right? So Mm -hmm. it could mean that you're just don't do a lot of movement throughout the day, keeping in mind that like if every minute besides your sleep time was available for moving, what the percentage of what you actually do in movement. And then there's this other component, which is you could be moving. Like you could say, I took a five mile walk today, but if your musculature has adapted so much to not moving, not all of you is moving. Right. So you can have large swaths of sedentary cells not contributing to your, let's say your basal metabolic rate or even your moving metabolic rate, you know, when you're moving. So it's, that's why we work so much on mobilization and finding these small muscles that by nature have been switched off through adaptation to a sedentary culture. So I don't know if I answered your question there, but you're going to, you're going to improve your metabolism and utilize more of your fat stores if you're not putting in food. A lot of times you'll want to feed your new movement, but it's hard to work from your storage, right? If, if you, like the right. storage is there in times when food is not available, but if you're extra hungry and you eat your, <laughs> eat your food instead of eat your fat stores, and it's not quite that linear, but you can kind of get a, a general sense of, it's hard to mobilize fat, but I think that that's, it's interesting, like ambient temperature, exposing yourself to ambient temperature, you know, to, to convert. I don't know if it converts. There's been some indication that white fat can convert to brown fat given the need. Yeah. And I wanted to, to ask you about that, or I don't know if you saw, I would found a little study and I didn't read the whole study. I just read the abstract. Oh, with the burn victims, that the burn victims, yeah. Yeah, I thought about that further. There was a study in people, I can't remember how many people it was. It was kind of a lot considering their terrible situation. But they had some white fat that converted to brown fat after an extreme, what was an adrenaline, you know, dumping situation where they had like 50% of their body was burnt. Of course, you know, then they're saying, we can make a pill. Do we have to figure this out? We'll make a pill to convert our white fat to brown fat. But I was just thinking about that in relation to temperature, too. Yeah, and I don't, it's you so know? hard. Like, a lot of times they'll think, you know, with the study, like, that's maybe the first hypothesis. I remember seeing that a while ago in the last couple months. But, you know, it's really hard to say, is it because they were, had a lot of adrenaline going? And there have, there are also, you know, they're always trying to test what chemicals can we expose people to, to make them like shrink their fat storage. But it could also be temperature, right? If you've burned up a lot. Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, so like, if they haven't delineated that yet, then that would be, there's just so much, like, there's just usually many questions to ask. Like, you could just go down a rabbit hole of investigating to find the direct mechanism and and hopefully you'll never mm-hmm. have a large group of people who are burn victims yeah. to do that kind of stuff on. But yeah, I think it's all very interesting just to reframe fat. If we could do anything for you today, mm-hmm. it would be 
for you to think about fats differently. Yeah. Oh, this is really interesting to me. Cool. I, I feel about this whole brown fat thing, kind of like you do about skin. It's like, I just want to know <laughs> sure, more. Sure. And where, how does it make it happen? And all, all you people have some kids and get them into the sciences so they can do this research. <laughs> or just or just get into them yourself. Why wait? Yeah. Why it. wait? Yeah, well, this is interesting. Um, well, there's just so many questions to it, but I just think that the point of this is, like you said, to reframe yeah. fat and, and how we look at it. Just, I had so many puns as I was reading through all this material, you know, and research. And like, wow, fat really has a lot of puns, but I was just too interested to even drop one of them. Did you say drop one of them? Ah. <laughs> that was good. That was good. Ah. It, was, it was interesting. You know, I was a long-term breast feeder for almost five years. And there's interesting, interesting information about fat deposits. When you get pregnant, there are particular fat deposits that go in particular locations, right? So you're, yes, you are usually gaining a little bit more fat as necessary for the future physiological processes that need to happen. And the location of those fatty deposits seem to have a particular trend. So it's not, there is the extra fat, you know, just from other things that go along with pregnancy, perhaps culturally in an abundant food culture. But then there's also just the fact that you have physiological need that's coming up. And so it took, I stopped breastfeeding. It's been almost a quarter, a quarter of a year, four months. Okay. And it took my milk just dried up. I know everyone was excited to tune in to hear that. It took four months (laughs) without any suckling because mammals suck to, I could still, I could still squeeze and get milk. Right. But I just like, and the kids are always like, can we squeeze and let's see? And there's nothing else. So it's, <laughs> it's gone now. But only now, once it's gone, was there an immediate, I mean, and I'm talking over a period, I mean, immediate in, in a long timeline of a year, like over a period of three weeks, the storage, the storage of these particular areas of my body that just were holding on this particular fat. And I have never felt, ever felt the need to exercise the body fat off of my body because I, I know that there are physiological purposes for it. So to sit and try to reduce particular fat, I was like, that's my milk supply. Don't you mess with my milk supply? Especially when it's, you know, where is your milk mobilized from? Is it similar to spot reduction where the milk that what you're calling on is of local, like none of that's ever been investigated. So I try to hold space mm. for all of that in my mind of going, there's so little we know about. And so you notice this shift or this, this drop off as soon as suckling stopped no, or they dried as up? As soon as my milk dried up. As soon as I was it dried still up. making milk. Okay. You know, there's definitely getting back on, like there was a hormonal shift. There was a fat shift. All of these, I was in a transition for the last four months. And I, Mm. there is a tangible line now that I can see that I can measure, you know, your appetite is going down. There were so many things, but I just went through this process. And so I have a, a deep appreciation for my relationship with my particular fat. Like I see it as a very beautiful thing. And if I can help anyone reframe their particular body for themselves as something that is working beautiful, it's serving you, then if you desire something different, you can work with it in a more loving way as opposed to trying to eradicate a part of you that you hate that's currently meeting some need, you know? So anyway, that's a good, that's a good note to end the show. That was spot on. 
Oh, gosh. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's not spot on. (laughs) There is no spot on. Oh, all right. Well, that was awesome. We done? I'm, I'm done. Actually, I have one more thing to say. It's the Katie Says Podcast, where movement came to <laughs> Happy oh, Groundhog good. Day. So, sometimes I, I leave these little sessions just kind of with my mind blown. And like I spend the next three days just mulling over because you often help reframe a way of thinking about things. And it's something I appreciate about you as a teacher. Reframe. So reframe. You know that song? Reframe. Yeah, I do. I do. All right. All right. Uh, you get the puns. I will get the classics. Yeah. You just keep singing, babe. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. For more information, books, online classes, etc., you can find Katie Bowman at nutritiousmovement.com. You can learn more about me, Danny Hemmett, movement warrior and aspiring brown fat creator at moveyourbodybetter.com. We hope you find the general information on biomechanics, movement, and alignment informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and shouldn't be used as such. 